think about Advent, we think about Christmas, who exactly is it that we are celebrating? Well, what have we seen so far in Advent? We've seen that the reason, 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Christmas is about the downfall of the devil through the birth of Christ, but birth's just one facet, as Hallie told us in the video. His birth leads to his life and his exercising of demons as he's taken the kingdom of man from Satan and establishing his own kingdom. And then comes his death and then his resurrection and then his ascension. You have the cradle, the cross, the crown. And last week we considered the one born of a virgin who is Emmanuel, who is God with us. And this morning we get to consider the superiority of the Son from the book of Hebrews. Be page 941 if you're using one of our Bibles. And these one off sermons are kind of hard because we don't have context, but many of you are familiar with Hebrews. Hebrews is really one sermon, it's one long expositional sermon on the Old Testament. And really, what the author of Hebrews is wanting to do is keep these Jewish Christians who are being persecuted from going back to the Old Covenant. That was their temptation. And so he wants to enlarge Jesus. In many ways, the message of Hebrews is Jesus is better. But he also wants to urge them and warn them along the way, don't go back to the Old Covenant. Don't go back to Jerusalem. Don't go back to Old Covenant Judaism. And so in our intro to the sermon here, the main point will be that there is none more supreme than the Son. There is none more supreme than the Son. Look with me at Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. The Spirit, through the author of Hebrews, writes this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Nine reasons for the supremacy of of the Son from these three verses in Hebrews chapter 1. Number one, he's supreme because he's the final word. Look at verse 1. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son. Notice there right in the middle, God spoke. You just need to just stop and reflect on that for a moment. God spoke. As Francis Schaeffer used to say, he is there and he is not silent. He hasn't left us in the dark. He's given us a book that tells us how to receive eternal life, life that will not end, but it also tells us how to live the good life now. God spoke. What a gift. And he's spoken in many ways, Hebrews says, and in many times. Again and again, God has told his people his will. First to our fathers by the prophets long ago, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. God's revealed himself over time. You know, the Bible didn't just drop out of the sky complete, right? 
God revealed himself over time. God revealed himself progressively. And the culmination, the capstone of that revelation is the Son. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Long ago to the fathers by the prophets, but in the last days by the Son, Jesus is the pinnacle of divine revelation. And all pointed to him. Every story whispers his name. Adam points to the last Adam. Abraham and the promises to offspring, ultimately Galatians 3.16, the singular offspring of Abraham, Jesus, who brings blessing to the nations. He's the final sacrifice. He's the great prophet like Moses. He's the true king. He's the son of David. He brings a greater exodus, freeing us from sin and Satan. The temple was a type of his body. He's the temple where heaven and earth overlap, on and on and on. He's the capstone. You remember Matthew 17, the transfiguration? You have Moses there representing the law. You have Elijah there representing the prophets. You have the disciples. And they fall down and they they look up and they saw Jesus only. The law and the prophets point to him, find their fulfillment in him, find their culmination in him. And do you remember what the father says from heaven? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. The law and the prophets pointed forward to Jesus. He didn't come to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. Matthew 5, 17, to bring about that which it pointed forward to. And Jesus says in Luke 24, all that was written in the prophets and the Psalms and the writings, they must be fulfilled in me, he says. He is God's final revelation. God has spoken to us, and he's spoken to us preeminently by his son. John 1 says, the son has made known the father. The son has revealed the father. The word there? For make known is the word exegesato. Exegesato. It's where we get our word exegesis. Jesus exegetes the Father for us. He's the final word. And so just let me ask you, church, where do you look? Better, to whom do you listen? Who or what is in your ear? Church, if he is the final word, we must listen to him. As Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus is the final word of God. Second, Jesus is the inaugurator, the bringer of a new and better covenant. Really, the whole book of Hebrews is about this. Don't go back to the old covenant because Jesus has brought a new and better covenant. In verse 2 there, he says, in these last days, you know, we often yank that out of context. We yank that out of its first century context and say, we're in the last days. You know, every generation has done that. But at the end of the day, he's writing to the church in the first century. He's talking to them in these last days. This is not about us. It's about them. So what last days? Well, he's talking about the last days of the old covenants. In these last days of the Jewish age, remember the purpose of the sermon. Don't go back to the old covenant. Jesus is better. The days of the old covenant are numbered. The temple is going to be destroyed like we're seeing in the gospel of Matthew. In fact, flip over to Matthew, I mean Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 quotes, it's the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament. And it quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, which is the promise of a new and better covenant. But I just want to point you to the very conclusion here for now. Look at Hebrews 8, 13. Hebrews 8, 13, after he quotes the promise of a new covenant, he says, 
in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. See, the old covenant is about, in this context, even after the cross, it's about to vanish away. Jesus, because of his blood, it's effective. And Jerusalem is about to be destroyed just in a few years. Just a few years from now, Rome's going to come in and sack the whole city, just like Jesus prophesied. So he's speaking about the oldness of the old covenant. He brings a newer one. It's in its last days. It's about to be gone. Flip a page to Hebrews 9. Maybe it's in the same page. Look at Hebrews 9, 26. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He, in the first century, brought the end of the ages. What age? Well, the end of the old covenant age. The end of the old way. Flip over to 1 Peter's the, the next book there after James and Hebrews. Flip over to 1 Peter 1.20. Jesus brings a new and better covenant. 1 Peter 1.20 speaks of Jesus. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. The last times are talking about the first century. In the last days of the old covenant, because Jesus is bringing a better one. In fact, this whole first chapter of Hebrews, my original intention was to preach Hebrews 1, 1 to 14. We ended up with verse 3. But the rest of chapter 1 really is making one point. Jesus is superior to angels. Look at verse 4. Hebrews 1.4. Having become as much superior to angels as the name as he inherited is more excellent than theirs. And the, the rest of the chapter... Of Hebrews 1 quotes seven Old Testament passages to show Jesus is superior to angels. That's the main point of the rest of the whole chapter. But why the focus on angels? Why all this attention given to the fact that Jesus is superior to angels? Don't we know that? Well, again, because he's showing the superiority of the new covenant. Jesus brings a new and better covenant. Well, what does that have to do with angels? Well, the old covenant was delivered by angels. In fact, flip a page to Hebrews chapter 2. Since the message, he's talking about the old covenant in this context, since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect uh, such a great salvation? So the, the belief at the time in multiple scriptures, and especially in the intertestamental period, was that the old covenant was given by angels. Galatians 3.19 says the old covenant was put in place by angels. In Acts 7, when Steve's Stephen is preaching the sermon that got him killed. He said the law was delivered by angels. And so what is the author of Hebrews here bringing up angels for? He's showing the superiority of Jesus over angels because Jesus brings a new and better covenant. What does that mean for us? What does the new covenant bring? Two main gifts that were desperately needed by old covenant Israel. Number one, full and final forgiveness of sins. No more bringing unblemished animals year by year, reminding yourself of your guilt and reminding yourself of the insufficiency of animal sacrifice. Full and final forgiveness of sins. It is finished. 
And then the gift of the Holy Spirit. Inward transformation. So objectively, our problem is guilt. And in the New Covenant, we have sacrifice. Subjectively, our problem is we're hard-hearted. But we're given the gift of the Spirit. Flip back to Hebrews chapter 8. Let's just read the whole chapter. This is where he's going to quote from Jeremiah 31 again. Longest Old Testament quotation. This in many ways is the whole point of the the sermon. Look at Hebrews 8.1. Now the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, Since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant, the old covenant, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion. There would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, and here's the quotation from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. Not like the old covenant. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt... For they did not continue in my covenants, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. They'll be changed from the inside out. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the east of them, to the least of them, to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. He says, I will remember their sins no more. It's not as if God has a bad memory. He has resolved to no longer treat you according to what you deserve. Is that good news this morning? Maybe you're here and you don't know the Lord, or maybe you're here and you're not sure. There's nothing better to do than to get that right. Your fundamental need in this world is the forgiveness of sins. God is holy. We are sinful. We are hopeless on our own. We need a mediator. We need a priest. We need help. The only solution is the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The only solution is the new covenant. So if that's you, you're invited. You can get that right today. Trust in Christ. And you will receive full and final forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit by which he will begin to change you from the inside out. Jesus brings a new and better covenant. Number three, Jesus is the heir of all things. Look again at Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2. Hebrews 1, 2, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things. 
Christ is the king of this world. That's what we've been singing about. All ye nations, joyful rise. He will inherit it all. You know where this comes from? Hebrews is just dipped in the Old Testament. And this comes from Psalm 2. Psalm 2, Psalm 8, and Psalm 110 are really important for understanding Hebrews. So I want you to turn there. Go with me to Psalm 2. We're not going to go to all of them, but I want you to get Psalm 2. Jesus is the heir of all things. Psalms are kind of in the middle of your Bible. Just turn left. Psalm chapter 2. A royal psalm, a messianic psalm, a psalm about the king. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is where we get the word Christos, Christ, Messiah. Against the Lord and against his Christ, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. How does the Lord respond? Does he wring his hands? Is he concerned about these raging nations? Verse 3, verse 4, excuse me. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, and here's the money verses. As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord, Yahweh, said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Verse 7, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that from half a dozen verses, but let me just read Acts 13 to you. We will bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he's fulfilled to their children by raising Jesus, as also it's written in the second psalm, quote, you are my son, today I have begotten you. He's begotten from the dead. Verse 7 is the resurrection. And then in verse 8 of Psalm 2, the father promises to give the son, what? The nations as his heritage. The nations as his gift. I will make you, I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. What a promise. The father is going to raise the son from the dead and install him as king. And he promises that he will ultimately own the whole world. Just ask. The father says to the son, the nations will be the son's inheritance. And this promise is found all over scripture. Again, we've sung about it all morning, but flip over to Psalm 22. He's the heir of all things. Therefore, he is superior. Psalm 22, of course, is quoted at the cross at the beginning of the psalm. Why have you forsaken me? But I want to turn your attention to the end. Look at Psalm 22, verse 27. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Do you believe that? All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you for kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Flip over to Psalm 72, another royal psalm, a psalm about the king. About the royal son 
who we're celebrating. Look at Psalm 72, verse 8. May this king, may he have dominion from sea to sea. And from the river to the ends of the earth, may desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastland render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Look over at verse 17. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations will call him blessed. Who is this Jesus that we're celebrating? He's the king of kings, the king of kings who will rule over the nations. There's none more supreme than the sun. It's also promised in the book of Daniel, which is about the exaltation of Jesus. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came, it's, it's a coming from earth to heaven. It's his ascension. There came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And listen to this. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man will inherit the nations. Why? Because the Father promised that he would. An indestructible kingdom of all peoples, nations, and languages. I love the way Colossians 1 puts it, verse 16. For by the Son, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He's the heir of all things. Everything, everything was created through him and ultimately everything was created for him. It's all for him. He's the heir of all things. But how does the king inherit the gift of the nations that the father promised him? It doesn't come automatically. It comes through you, through us, through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. God includes us in his plan to save the nations. What have we been commissioned? Because he's got all authority, our commission is to go what? Teach the nations to obey everything that the king said. Teach the nations. Why? Because the son will inherit the nations, just like Psalm 2, 8 promises. And since Jesus is the heir of all things, do you know what that means of us, his people? We're co-heirs. Because he gets it all, he shares it with us. That's our future. Number four. Number three, he's the heir of all things. Number four, Jesus is supreme because he's the creator. Look at Hebrews 2 2. Excuse me, Hebrews 1 2. Let me read it again. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And then look at verse 8 of chapter 1. But of the son, he says, and he has this quotation, but I want you to look at verse 10 at the second quotation. You, Lord, of the Son, he says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. In Genesis 1, how does God create? He speaks. He said, let there be light, and there was light. Jesus 
is the eternal word. God creates by the word. Jesus is the agent of creation. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John 1.10, the world was made through him. 1 Corinthians 8.6, yet for us there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. He's the creator. Again, Colossians 1, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So if he's creator, it's only right that he's also the heir of his creation. And if he's the creator, he's the owner. And if he's the owner, he knows best how this world is to work and how we're to live in it. He's the creator. Fifth, he's God. Jesus is God. Look at Hebrews 1.3 again. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power and then again look at Hebrews 1a but of the son he says quote your throne O God is forever and ever Jesus is God the deity of Jesus Christ is basic Christian testimony the father and the son are identical in substance Jesus is fully man fully God we saw that Last week, we'll see it again. But this truth has been attacked really from the very beginning. The denial of the deity of Christ. It's one of the first heresies, and it's an enduring heresy. One of the earliest heresies, in fact, it took over almost, was this heresy called Arianism. Arianism teaches that Jesus Christ is not creator, he's not God, but he's just the highest of the creation. It's modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses. So, was, you know, when Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, ask them what they know about Arius or the Nicene council. It started early, hadn't gone anywhere, and almost took over there for a little bit. At one point, it was Athanasius against the world. Athanasius was the, one of the main defenders of orthodoxy at the time. Well, at the time, they needed, they needed to correct the error. They had these little jingles, and it was popular, and the people were uneducated biblically, and so the heresy was spreading. And so all the church leaders came together in the fourth century. We know it as the Nicene Council, AD 325. In fact, St. Nicholas was there. St. Nicholas showed up at the Nicene Council in 8325, and he was a fiery, maybe too fiery, fiery defender of orthodoxy. I have a 14th century uh, painting from Turkey I want to show you. There he is. Can you make it out? Arius is on the left receiving a slap from St. Nicholas himself, the Bishop of Smyrna. So that's a 14th century painting. I've got a newer one that's a little more dope. Let's see. There you go. Come on. <laughs> you better watch out. You better not lie. You better not spout heresy. I'm telling you why. The document that came out of this creed is called the Nicene Creed. It's in some ways what a Christian is. What is a Christian? It's someone who affirms the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Let me read from the Nicene Creed from the 4th century. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, 
begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. There it is. He's the creator. He's not a creation. Of the same essence as the Father. Through him, all things were made. They're just quoting a bunch of Bible that I've already read, aren't they? Church, if Jesus is God, then he is worthy of our worship in all of life. Sixth, Jesus is omnipotent, omnipotent, all-powerful. Notice what verse 3 said. He upholds the universe. Jesus is not only the heir, he's not only the creator, he's also the sustainer of all things. And if Jesus is omnipotent, he is to be marveled at. And seventh, more specifically, Jesus' word is omnipotent. Jesus' word is all-powerful. Look at verse 3 again of Hebrews 1. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power, by his powerful word. Why are we sitting here? Why am I standing here? The word of his power. Why is this building not caving in? The word of his power. What keeps the stars in the sky? The word of his power. Without his powerful word upholding all things, everything around us would dissolve into nothingness. But Jesus has said, not yet, not so. Colossians 1.17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Church, if his word is power, we must pursue it. Seek it, read it, know it, treasure it, be changed by it. Eighth, Jesus is a better priest. Look at verse 3 again. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He made purification for sins. Most of Hebrews, again, it's about this theme of this better priest who brings a better covenant. We don't have time to unpack it, but all of Hebrews chapter 7 is about the important fact that Jesus is not a priest in the order of Aaron, but he's actually a priest in the order of Melchizedek, another sermon for another day. But I do want you to see the, the conclusion of his argument. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. Jesus is a better priest. There's none more supreme than the Son. After showing why Jesus is of Melchizedek and not Levi, says this, Hebrews 7, 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's a better priest because he doesn't die. And your priest lives forever to make intercession for you, praying for you at the Father's right hands. For indeed it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. 
He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appointed, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. He's a better priest. Look at chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer Sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Friends, I can't think of a better gift than a purified conscience. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make, Jeremiah 31 again, with them after those days, declares the Lord, I'll put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. He's our priest. He's a better priest. He's the agent of creation and recreation. If Christ is priest, we can go to him. And we can go to him with boldness. We can draw near. If Christ is priest, we must trust him. We must trust his work. And then ninth, Jesus is king. Look again at Hebrews 1.3. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purifications for sins, he sits down. After his work on the cross is finished, he rises from the dead. He ascends to the right hand of God. Anytime you hear that language, right hand of God, you need to know where it comes from. Right hand of God happens all over the place in the New Testament. It comes from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is God's favorite verse. Why do I say that? Because the New Testament quotes Psalm 110 more than any other Old Testament passage. Anytime you hear right hand of God, you ought to go read Psalm 110 for a refresher. Let's go there. Psalm 110. Jesus is king. 
Another royal psalm. Psalm of David. We'll see this in Matthew in January. Psalm 110.1. This verse in particular is quoted more than any other passage. Therefore, it's important to God. We need to know it. The Lord, speaking of Yahweh there, Yahweh, the Lord says to David's Lord. The Lord says to my Lord. What does he say? Sit at my right hands until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Which, by the way, this is why we know this isn't just eternity we're talking about. It's talking about history. Why? Because this king will rule, and he will rule in the midst of enemies. In eternity, there are no enemies. This rule is speaking of historical reign. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. This is what Hebrews 7 is all about. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So not only is he a king, he's a priest. You didn't combine those two offices in the old covenants. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations. Filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs. The ESV has a little footnote there. The word is literally head. This king will crush heads, which should remind us of the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. Over the wide earth, he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The right hand of God is the place of all authority. Jesus sits, not to rest, but to rule. The place at the right hand of God is the place of reigning. This is where Jesus is ruling, and he's there now. He ascended. Christ is reigning now, and he will continue to reign until, you notice that word, until his will is fully accomplished on earth. That's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. King Jesus is in the position of authoritative ruler over the entire world, and he will continue to sit at the right hand of God until all his enemies have been subdued, until he gives the gift his father promised, and that is the nations and the ends of the earth. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. The last enemy is death. Then he'll return and consummate the kingdom he began in his first coming. In other words, Jesus... While Jesus is at the right hand of God, and before he comes, all his enemies will be conquered by the king through the gospel. Of the increase of his government, there will be no end, Isaiah chapter 9. Christmas is God's invasion plan. Listen to the way 1 Corinthians 15 puts it. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. For he must reign until... He's put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus is king. 
Jesus is ruling and reigning now from the right hand of God. And again, Psalm 110 is quoted some 15 times in the New Testament, five times in Hebrews. Let's look at them. Go back to Hebrews chapter 1. We just saw it in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. It's a big deal to the book of Hebrews. It's a big deal to the whole New Testament. We mentioned in verse 3, he sat down at the right hand of God. Look at verse 13. He quotes it again. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Flip over to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. We saw it already. Now the point and what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. That's Psalm 110.1. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. He's the king. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Then finally, look at Hebrews 12, 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He made purification for our sins as priest. And then he sits down as king at the right hand of God, where he is now ruling and reigning, slowly but surely subduing his enemies through the preaching of the gospel, through evangelism, through discipleship, through church planting, through missions as he inherits the nations. So if Christ is king, church, we must submit every area of our lives to him. I want us just to take a moment. Close your Bibles. I just want us to take a moment of reflection to prayerfully respond to this king, this one we're celebrating. If you're comfortable, close your eyes. Jesus is God. He is creator. He is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's our final word. He's the inaugurator of a new covenant. He's the heir of all things. He's our prophet, priest, and king. There is none more supreme than the Son.